you have your Bible with you this morning, I'd like for you to turn to Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8, as we continue through this wonderful historical narrative of the people of God in a time of restoration and renewal. Do you long for that? Really? Do you long for renewal and restoration? When you look out on the landscape of the church today, do you even see that it is needed? I wonder. Well, I fully believe this morning that it is needed. In many ways, I think we do see um, God's gracious hand, and I'm thankful for those ways. And yet, I can't help but also be burdened with a desire that God would do more. More to renew His people to biblical faithfulness, to renew His people to the task of making disciples who will in turn make disciples who will in turn make disciples until Jesus returns. The words have been handed down to us faithfully and it is our turn. It is our time and it is our charge. Chapter 8 of the book of Nehemiah is a wonderful chapter. I hope many of you read it before you even came this morning. Historically, the impact of Nehemiah 8 in the scripture is um, profound. Because it is in Nehemiah chapter 8 that we often trace, historically we have traced... What shapes the gatherings of the people of God? You already know the answer. It's on the screen. And hopefully we'll see it in here as well. But we're to be a people that are shaped by the book. And if that sounds too simple, (laughs) if that sounds archaic, I ensure you this morning that it is not only historically what has shaped the people of God, but it is also the one necessary thing to the gatherings of the people of God. Without the Bible, you and I would be only left to our opinions. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> Wouldn't it be wonderful if we all just came together and we just shared our opinions about what we thought we ought to do, about what we thought, how how we thought things should go and what we should emphasize and uh, what we should leave off. If you're married, (laughs) you know that 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 can be a challenge just to bring two people together talking about their opinions much less multitudes of people in congregations like this and larger across the world. Let's read a little bit, and then I'd like to pray with you. And uh, I don't think we'll read it all. We'll see as we go. Verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book. I love that. Bring the book of the law 
I want to just say that to churches all over America. Bring the book. Let's bring it back out. Bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly. Both men and women and all who could understand and what they heard. On the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate. From early morning until midday. In the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra, the scribe, stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood these men that I won't try to go through their names. And in verse 5, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And he opened it. And and as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen. Lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And then we have these other, these Levites here. That helped the people to understand the law. While the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to everyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Without it, we would be lost in a sea of opinions. Without it, we would have no way to understand truth from error without it we would not understand how that we can be in an eternal peaceful relationship with you without it we wouldn't understand that we are sinners and you are holy without it we would not understand that you have acted in the person of Jesus of Nazareth God the son To save sinners. Without it we wouldn't know that you require us to repent. And turn away from sin. And to believe. To trust and depend upon you. And your work. Of atonement through Jesus Christ. Without it O God we would. Be lost. And dying. 
So we are thankful for your word. And we are thankful for your spirit that teaches us. That helps us to understand your word. We thank you this morning that we have this great privilege. This great privilege to be able to open your word, read it, and to unpack its precious truths. Oh Lord, you know that I'm unworthy of the task. So have mercy upon me for the sake of this people. And anoint me this day to speak. And anoint them to hear. And change us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to talk to you this morning about this gathering. The title, Shape of the Book, is simply to see the overarching emphasis that this particular chapter shows us that the people of God were shaped by the book. They were molded by the book. They were taught by the book. They were governed by the book. And there's so many things that we could point out along the way. But I have three main things that I want to point out. Number one, I want us to see, and all of these are going to have to do with it. This is a gathering, okay? This is a gathering, just like this morning is a gathering, okay? So we want to put that out front and think through that grid. The first thing is that this was a word-centered gathering. This was a word-centered gathering. Now, you say, wow, whoo, that blew us off the stage. What is significant about that is that there are many other words that should be used and, and could be used to describe many of the gatherings that are happening this morning. And it would not be a word-centered gathering. I don't know what you might consider, but many of them I would consider to be entertainment-centered gatherings. So very often we see to our hearts breaking that many people today have misunderstood how the church should gather and what should be at the center of that gathering. Very often we see churches just simply tipping their hats, as it were, to the scriptures as they go about doing other things. And it is a sad tragedy, to say the least. But not this particular gathering, not this group. God was working to renew his people. God was working to restore his people. He had blessed them tremendously as we have looked at Nehemiah and even before that in the book of Ezra. And he is continuing to renew them and restore them and to reform them. And what is at the center of it all is his word. So when the people of God gathered in Nehemiah 8, it was a word-centered gathering. It was a remarkable scene of the people of God expressing their desire for the Word of God and revealing to us both the supremacy and the importance of God's Word in the lives of His people. No doubt the Word of God is important and significant to you as an individual Christian. 
But I want us to notice that the immediate and the explicit context that we are seeing this emphasis is in the gathered church. The gathered church. And I can use the word church because the word church simply means the assembly. It comes from the idea, two ideas. It's the assembly, the ecclesia. That's the Greek word. And it comes from another word that means the Lord's, the Lord's group, the Lord's people. So in a very real sense, God has always had his people. He's always had his people. And as his people gather together, they are a word-centered people. They are a word, this was a word-centered gathering and I believe there are at least three implications from the story that we, that we read together. I believe that we can see implications of, or of their motives. Of their motives for this kind of gathering. Number one, I believe that they wanted to hear from God. They wanted to hear the truth. They wanted to hear from God. So they asked for the book. I believe that's an implication. I believe that we can see that, and I'll tell you why here in a moment. They wanted to hear from God, and so they asked for the book. Secondly, I believe they were motivated because they wanted to live in a way that was pleasing to God. They wanted to live in a way that was pleasing to God, and therefore they asked for the book. Because that's how you know how to live in a way that's pleasing to God. And thirdly, I believe they were motivated because they wanted to give place and honor to God for His gracious revelation. They wanted to give place to it, and they wanted to give honor to God for giving them revelation of Himself in His Word. And I can't just, it, in my own heart this morning, even as I say that, I'm convicted. Because the reality is, we have Bibles laying everywhere in America. And I would say that your home has multiple Bibles in it. And if it doesn't, I'll give you one or three. Because I have them everywhere. I have them at home. I have them in my study. They're laying throughout the church. But this gathering was a word-centered gathering. Because they wanted to give place to it. Let's give place to the Word of God. Not tip our hats to it. Not read a verse. And then I'm tempted to say things that we have seen and experienced, but I won't. But turn our attention from the Word and what it means and what it, what it says and what it calls for to other stuff. Or to live our personal lives in such a way as not to give place to the Bible never opening it on a daily basis. That's not what kind of gathering this was. They were willing to give place and honor to God for His gracious revelation. Do you understand this morning what I led us in in that prayer, thanking God for this book? Do you understand that if you did not have this book, there would be no hope for you? Because although it's inherent in the human being, created by God and endowed with such, 
a consciousness to know that there is a creator by looking at the stars and the sun, the oceans. The Psalm 19 says that the, um, the firmament declares the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. They, they show us that there's a creator who designed all of this. But it's not enough to save us. There is need of more. We must understand the significance of the book. Or else we will let it sit idly by. Now why do I think I see these implications of their motives? I think that they are motivated to, with a desire to hear from God. To understand truth. To live in a way that's pleasing to Him. To give place and honor to God for giving us this revelation of himself through words that can be understood. That could be canonized and fixed so that we have them as objective truth for all time. Because of three things that they did. Number one, they called for the book. Verse one. They called for the book. <laughs> and that is just remarkable to me. I mean, that is remarkable in our day because most of the time you don't hear that as a pastor. Trust me, you don't. Most of the time, pastors do not hear from the people, give us the book. Bring us the book. We want the book. We want to hear the words of God. We want to hear it unpacked for our edification and for our good. Bring the book out. (laughs) You don't hear that much these days. I know one particular pastor in our city, this city that we live in, and he's not the only one, but I know this one for a fact. He may get 10 to 15 minutes to preach because I got to get all the other stuff in. It is a shame, my friends. It is a shame. This gathering was a word-centered gathering, and, it, and they, they wanted to hear from God, and therefore they called for the book. They were motivated to say, bring us the book of the law. The second reason, I think, is because they were perseveringly committed to hear from God through His Word. They were perseveringly committed to hear from God through His Word. If you look in verse 3, It says, and he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and all who could understand. And when you look at that verse and you understand what it's saying, they were there for six hours. Six hours. They were perseveringly committed to hearing from God through his word. Bring the book. It's going to take six hours. That's fine. We're committed to it. We're committed to it. And you may say to me, well, I have a, uh, I have a, an attention problem. I understand that. You think that's something new? In our overly psychologized culture, we just came up with that the last few decades. Now you have an attention span problem. So did I. When I was a little boy, I had an attention span problem, and my, my dad worked it out real nice and real easy. A lot of times, it's not an attention problem, it's a heart problem. 
They wanted to hear from God. They were perseveringly committed to it. And so when they came in this gathering, I'm not saying everybody was perfect in this gathering, pure in their motivation, but the Bible gives us no indication otherwise, but to see this gathering as a word-centered gathering where the people were perseveringly committed to hear from God through His Word, no matter how long it took. And third, the third reason is because they were attentive to the content. They were attentive to the content. Verse 3 also says there that their ears, the people, were attentive to the book of the law. Now you do know that there's a huge difference between being attentive to the content of the word and looking like you're attentive to the content of the word. There's a huge difference there. <laughs> Have you ever been listening to someone and then realize after about five minutes that you actually were not listening? Your wife, perhaps. Jackie says, you're not listening. I heard everything. No. Sometimes we can look attentive, but we're not. Now, these people, the Bible goes so far as to give us that little nugget of truth as to say that they were attentive to the content of the Bible. And I feel, I feel today, that what so many hearts would rather prefer is to hurry through the content to get to something else. And if that's true in your heart today, acknowledge it before God and ask Him to forgive you and ask Him to give you a hunger and a thirst for the Word. Much of the gatherings today called worship gatherings are the exact opposite of what we see in Nehemiah chapter 8. People are more often today sitting back passively rather than having their minds engaged in the Word and its content. Its careful exposition is often neglected. And so we see the sad results Of so many man-centered, entertainment-driven gatherings. They do nothing to call sinners who are accountable to God to hear His words and repent and believe for their eternal salvation. They do nothing to call people to flee from the coming wrath of God upon all sinners. They do nothing to warn people of everlasting fire in hell. That awaits those who reject God. Those who deny the Lord Jesus Christ. And dismiss the Holy Spirit. Why? Because we don't want to feel that way. Do we? Very often we want to feel happy. And it's not really even happiness that we desire. It's more of a fake happiness. (laughs) Like when you act like everything's okay when it's not. And we're called to warn people. These superficial, people-pleasing gatherings do nothing to edify the true people of God. They are starving. They do nothing to make disciples of Jesus who, by the Spirit of God, increasingly grow strong and mature, Christ-like in their attitude and actions. Who know and live according to the Word of God, and as a result of that, they shine. Brightly as stars against the backdrop 
of the night sky. And so we need to be a people that are shaped by the book. And in order to do that, we need together with a word at the center. Number two. Number two. This was a worship field gathering. So it was a word-centered gathering, and it is a worship field gathering. And I want you to notice a dynamic here in this story that is true throughout the Bible, that worship is the overflow of the revelation of God in His Word. Worship is the overflow of the revelation of God. It's not an emotion that you drum up with music or lighting or any other natural means. Worship is the overflow of the revelation of God in His Word. Biblical worship rises on the wings of truth. It rises on the wings of truth to the degree that you understand who God is and how He is and what He is like as He has revealed Himself according to the Word by the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit through those means you can then ride upon the waves of truth to worship God. It's the reason that Jesus said that the true worshipers that the Father is seeking will be those who worship God in spirit and truth. To the degree that you misunderstand who God is and what He is like, to that degree, no matter what it looks like, and to the naked eye, the outward appearance, it may look the same. Hands raised, head bowed, whatever the demeanor, whatever the physical outward thing is going on, to the degree that we do not know or misunderstand who God is and what He is truly like, to that degree, we are engaging in at least a form of idol worship. That you could be sitting in here this morning and you could be singing and you can be praying and you can be listening in such a way that you're actually worshiping a creation of your own mind rather than the true and the living God. Their worship is characterized two things. Number one, submissiveness. And number two, respect. Let's see where we see those in the text. Their worship was characterized by submissiveness and respect. They expressed submissiveness in the exclamation. They said the word, Amen. Amen. If you look at verse 6, they say at the reading of the word, Amen. Amen. And the word Amen has two primary meanings. It means, quote, so it is, end quote. So it is. Amen. So it is. So you're hearing the word of God and they are exclaiming, there it comes, they're exclaiming the word, amen, so it is. And the second primary um, meaning of the word amen is, quote, let it be, end quote. So it is, let it be. So there's a submissiveness expressed in the word amen. So you should never use the word amen without in your heart understanding what the passage is talking about, understanding what, say for example, what commandment is given. And in your heart you say the word amen because you're saying that is 
true and right. And I want it that way. I want it to be so. Amen. It is true. Your word is truth. And I want it that way. Let it be. We have a longing to see the word of God true. And we long to see the word of God fulfilled in our lives. Fulfilled in our churches. Fulfilled in the world. That's the reason that Jesus taught us in the disciples prayer. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. They were submissive. To the word of God. The second way that they expressed this submissiveness was in their demeanor and their body language. Their demeanor. In verse 6, it says that they lifted up their hands and they bowed their heads, their faces to the ground. So even in their body language, it shows submissiveness to the word of God, to the authority of the word of God. The word of God has authority to speak into my life and to correct me on any front. Do you believe that? Whatever the Bible says, we are submissive to it when we bring ourselves under its authority and are willing to obey. And this submissiveness was even shown in their body language. They're, they were humbled, their faces to the ground, under the weight of the revelation of this God of heaven who is holy and just and powerful and wise and gracious and merciful. And under the weight of the revelation of God, they bowed their heads. Under the weight of the revelation of God is a longing for God expressed even in the lifting of the hands. There's, a, there's something about, about the revelation of God. And as you cry out to God, it just makes you want to reach for Him. Body language is really uh, tricky, isn't it? Because if someone knows about their body language and they're trying to be mindful of it, they can, they can trick you. <laughs> they can look attentive when they're really not attentive. They can look interested when they're not. They can look the part when their heart is not there. Isn't that what Jesus taught us? You can clean up the outside of the cup, but the inside is more important. But if the inside is important, it's going to come out. (laughs) If you're happy and you know it, you're going to smile. You might laugh. If you're sad, it will show. And they were submissive even in the way that they worshiped. The second characteristic of their worship was not only submissiveness, but respect. And in verse 5, you'll notice that another, here another outward thing, their bodies stood at the hearing of the word, as if in the very presence of God. They were willing to show respect to God as they stood while it was being read. Now, here's another thing about worship services, and, and, and I want to just be clear, even though I'm not going to say as much here as I'd like to, but but an old deacon that in my life years ago used to he he said something I'll never forget because I grew up in uh, I grew up in the in the old regular Baptist church and uh, they really valued vocalization and uh, emotion so. If you were sweating and kicking and loud and stomping and spitting on people on the front row, you were preaching. I mean, you were preaching. But if you didn't do those things, 
Well, I don't know if that was the Spirit. And this deacon, same, same church, same group, he said one time, he said, you know, preaching is really not in the lungs. Bing. There is absolutely no correlation between the Holy Spirit's working and the volume of my voice. None. God can be working when we are speaking very clearly, very pointedly, very quietly. And God can be speaking when I'm very excited because we're talking about stuff that's exciting and, and, and wonderful. So I'm not anti-emotion. I'm just saying emotion does not, emotion does not equal spirit. You understand? The people stood at the reading of the word for six hours. St. Augustine, and for many years, and even in the Bible, Jesus Christ, how did he, when they worshiped, they gathered, they were a word-centered in the synagogues, but how did, how did Jesus teach? He sat and taught the people. All the spirits, not in that. <laughs> Would you say that about Jesus? I don't think so. We have to break down these preconceived notions about what it is to have worship, what it is to experience God. Listen, is two twofold dynamic. It is the Word of God and the Spirit of God. The Word of God and the Spirit of God. When the Word of God is given and the Spirit of God is at work, there will be worship. How do I get on that? They respected and they were submissive to, to it. Oh, yeah, I started to tell you about Augustine or Augustine, whichever one you want prefer, St. Augustine. He, he did the same thing. He taught sitting down, and the people stood. This is 300s, okay, A.D. I wonder sometimes if you took away all of the antics, all of the kicking and snorting and shouting and spitting and all of the... Uh, Jokes, if you took those away from so many preachers today, they wouldn't have a single thing to say. It's not in the lungs. It's not in the antics. It's not in emotionalism. It's in the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Now listen, the reason I tell you that is not because I'm superior to any other preacher. Don't hear me saying that. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying, the reason I'm telling you that is because I love you. And I want you to understand that just because you have an emotional experience does not mean that your heart is submissive to the Word of God. It does not mean because you have an emotional experience that you necessarily truly respect the words of God. And I want us to understand that when we gather, we are to be centered upon the Word by giving it space, by giving it preference, and we are to be... Uh, we are to ride on the winds of truth from that word through the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit of God. Then that will give rise to our affections, our emotions. Otherwise, all it is is emotionalism. So, before we go to, to the final one, I want us to notice in verses 8 and 9 that the people worshipped under the teaching of the Word of God. Under the teaching of it. The emphasis of verses 8 and 9 are this. They read from the book clearly. What does that mean? 
and they gave the sense. That's, that's exactly what it means. To read it clearly is to read it in such a way that they give the understanding of it. And the people, it says, understood the reading. What gave them the emotional response that we're going to see in just a moment, which is the final point, what happened to them was because they understood it. <laughs> if you hear the Bible but don't understand it, then you're, not, you're, you're obviously not going to respond in a proper way. And so worship that is so often confined to this emotionalism in the Bible actually has everything to do with the mind. Has everything to do with understanding and not sheer emotion. And here we see it in Nehemiah 8. Number three and finally, this was a sobering Yet joyful gathering. This was a sobering yet joyful gathering. Verses 9 to 12. It was sobering because the people were grieved over their violations against the law of God. They understood that God punishes sin. And under the word of God, coming under the word of God will first and foremost expose our sinfulness. Coming under the Word of God will first expose our sinfulness. When Isaiah had his experience in Isaiah 6, I believe it was, it says, In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And he gives this wonderful, majestic description of being in the very presence of God. And the first thing that happens to him is he says, Woe unto me, for I am undone. The Word of God comes to us, and the first thing that it does is it exposes us as sinners. It brings us to the understanding of the great peril and our great need in the presence of a holy God. And yet, the gathering, as you can see from our verses, turn to rejoicing and joy because the Word not only exposes our sinfulness, but God's mercifulness and graciousness. They were broken because of their sin, but God was the one who was acting to renew them and to restore them. So when we come in here on Sunday mornings or whenever we gather and we read the book, there's going to be a sense in which at almost every chapter we Come under the weight of the fact that we're sinners. We have broken God's commandments this week. We have fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. All of sin comes short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. We come under the reality of our sinfulness and God's holiness. And we understand that God is a, is, is a just God. And we deserve to be punished for our sins. But then we come under the Word of God, the same Word that teaches us of our sinfulness, teaches us that God is gracious and merciful and has acted in Christ so that we can be forgiven and saved. And so it's interesting that that is exactly what happened to them. <laughs> they, were, they were mourning. And he says, don't mourn. 
don't mourn today. Now, and I thought about that. Why? Why would you look at someone and say, don't, don't be grieved? Wouldn't we want to say that, yes, you need to be, you need to be broken over your sins? And I, I think this is the answer to, the, to that dilemma. The reason that he said, don't be grieved, is because the grief was naturally there under the Word of God as it should be. But, if we're not careful, we will allow grief to overcome our, our hearts and bring us to despair and depression and maybe even destruction. And that's not the Word of God. The Word of God takes us, takes us from where we are to where God is taking us. The Word of God takes us from who we are as sinners to who we can be in Christ. And therefore, it reveals to them their sinfulness. They knew that they had broken the law of God. They knew that God had punished them for 70 years as, as, the, as the Babylonians came in and carried them away and destroyed the temple and tore down the walls. And they knew that they had broken God's commandments. And they knew, no doubt in their heart of hearts, that they were breaking them still. And what is he going to do now? And I think the answer to the dilemma is this. That their leaders, Nehemiah and Ezra and these other men that were on the platform who were teaching the people and giving them the sense of the text, I believe that they knew what God was doing. They understood that although they had broken God's commandments, this was a time period in the life of the people of God that they were being restored and they were being renewed. You understand? God had given them great success in coming back. God had moved. Remember Ezra? God had moved in their hearts to bring them back to their homeland. God had moved in a pagan king's heart to give them the authority and the supplies to rebuild the temple. God gave them success in rebuilding the temple. God gave them success in rebuilding the walls of the city of Jerusalem. God gave them success on every front in the midst of all the opposition that we've been looking at in these verses together, he had given them great success and their leaders knew this is a time of renewal. This is a time of restoration. This is a time of reform. God is at work. Don't be grieved. Recognize that you're a sinner. Yes, recognize that we have been punished. Recognize that God is just. But also recognize what God is doing. What is God doing in your life this morning? Is he revealing sin he will reveal also the Savior. And so knowing that God had restored them and understanding what time and what the hand of the Lord was doing, they also understood that they were just getting started. It's, it's not there explicitly, but as you read the story, don't you get the idea that they're saying, you know, we've been up here for six hours reading the Word, and you're already crying, and you're already depressed, and all, and you know what that does to you, don't, it? don't you? It makes you want to just go somewhere and go to sleep. But they got a lot of work to do. God is just getting started in the process of reformation. God is just getting started in the process of reform of His people. They haven't even begun. This is the, this is the beginning of the reading of the book. And they say, now you need to go on and you need to eat the good provisions that God has given you and you need to rejoice in what God is doing in his, among His people and you need to, to rejoice because the joy of the Lord is your strength. 
And they had a long way to go. And they knew it. So don't be overcome with despair. If you recognize this morning that you're a sinner, understand that God has acted in and through Christ to save you from your sin. And understand that the process of sanctification, the process of reform, the process of growing as a word-centered, worship-filled people is a long process. You need to You need to look at it from the long view and understand that what God has begun in you, He will continue to do until He, listen to this word, until He completes it. And one day, you and I will never sin again. Can you imagine that? Never sin again when Jesus returns. (laughs) But we're in process now. We need, to, we need to be grieved over our sins. We need to repent. It needs to bring us to repentance. And when we repent, when we turn away from it, from it and trust in the work of the cross, then we need to rest in the promises of God and let the joy of our Lord be our strength. Let me pray with you. Thank you this morning, God, for your word and for your people that are here. Thank you this morning for your spirit that, tr- that teaches us. And so we pray today that our gatherings as a church would be a word-centered gathering. They would be worship-filled as you give us the work of illumination, as you teach us about yourself and your glories and your powers, who you are from your word. That on the On the waves of truth, our emotions would rise and our praise would ring out and our thankfulness would be expressed. We pray this morning that you would forgive us where we have sinned against you and in your sight and that you would restore us and renew us today that we may leave this place with the joy of the Lord in our hearts knowing you to be the awesome, just, holy, merciful, loving, gracious God who has promised your children that you would never leave us and you would never forsake us. You would go with us always, even unto the end of our lives or until you return. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And amen. Do you get it?